0: Well, I just thought I'd let you know that as I stand here in front of you today, I'm very qualified to do so. Don't know if you know that. Thought I'd let you know. You're welcome. Maybe in a lot of ways, I'm quite overqualified to be standing in front of you today. You see, it has a lot to do with the clothing I'm wearing. Let me explain to you. You may or may not know this, but for many years, I have owned a particularly elegant suit complete with coat, trousers, or as Americans call them, pants, and I can't do that because that means something else in Ireland, (laughs) and a hat. I've actually worn it quite often, consider myself quite dapper. When I wear my elegant suit, I'm confident others agree. Arthur Lucado puts this so very well. You see, my trousers, they're cut from a certain cloth. If I could explain this to you, I do a lot of good things you see my trousers are 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 cut from a cloth of just all my good works that I do it's quite impressive the fabric is very sturdy all kinds of things that I've accomplished projects complete check some studies here some sermons there a couple of seminary degrees under my belt are you impressed Many people compliment my trousers and I'll confess, I often hitch them up in public so that people will notice them. My coat, it's equally as impressive. You see, it's not my good deeds, that's my trousers. My coat, my convictions. You wouldn't believe my convictions. I'm quite sturdy with my convictions. I dress myself with my coat in a sense of religious fervor and zeal. Passion. My emotions on the subject are quite strong, so strong, in fact, that I'm often asked to model my coat of zeal and passion in front of other people. It's inspiring to people, I guess, so I'm happy to do it, happy to comply. And while I'm there, I may as well show you my hat. Beautiful feather cap of knowledge. I know quite a bit, you see. I've formed the hands my own hands then this fabric is filled with my own personal opinions which are quite smart and quite clever I can wear it proudly surely I think to myself God must be so impressed with my outfit sometimes I talk to him about it and hey God what do you think occasionally I will stand in his presence and with my self tailor-made wear my garments oddly enough he never says anything his silence must be admiration. <laughs> but you see, then something terrible happened. I'm sorry to say that my wardrobe has begun to suffer a little bit. Yeah, I don't know, I don't know what it was really, just maybe time. But the fabric of my trousers, it just, I noticed, it got a little thin. It wasn't the same. All, all my good works. All the things I've done, all the things I've accomplished and projects I've managed, and they just began to become unstitched a little bit. I began leaving more undone than done. I don't know how that happened. And then the stuff that I had done, I I began to really look at it and I'm like, ah, I mean, I don't even know if it's that much to brag about. No problem. I know what I'll do. I'll just work harder. Maybe you've done that yourself. Well, just work harder. But you see, working harder was the problem because there was this gaping hole in my coat of convictions. My resolve, which I thought could never be touched, became a little threadbare. And all of a sudden, a cold wind cut right through my chest. So I reached down to pull my hat firmly down on my head to make sure that it was snug. But you'll never believe what happened. The brim tore right off my hat. Couldn't believe it. Over a period of just a short amount of time, my wardrobe of self-righteousness became completely and utterly unraveled. I couldn't believe it. I went from a gentleman's fabulous apparel to beggar's rags. Well, I was quite concerned about this. In fact, I was fearful that God wouldn't be too pleased with me like I thought he was in the past when he looked at me. I became fearful that maybe God would be actually angry at my tattered suit. And I did my best to stitch it together and and to cover up the holes and to, to make do for all my lack of conviction and my lack of good works and all of my mistakes and all of my errors. But the cloth was just worn thin. There was nothing to hold on to anymore. And the wind was so icy... I just, gave, I just gave up and I went back to God. I didn't really know where else to go. I can't think of anywhere else to go. And so I walked into his presence and, and I'll be honest with you, my prayer was fairly feeble. God, I feel, I feel naked. Of course you are. You've always been that. But Alan, I have something for you. And he gently removed my filthy, dirty rags, the remaining threads, and he picked up a great robe, a regal robe, the clothing of his own goodness, and he put it on me. He wrapped it around my shoulders so tenderly, and gently he says, My son, you are now clothed in Christ. It was the words of an old hymn that I'd sung a whole bunch of times before, I finally sunk in, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand. Before the throne. I'd sung it a thousand times. Dressed in his righteousness alone. Faultless to stand before his throne. Whispers, whispers, whispers. We're in a series right now where every week we're knocking down lies. I'm not joking you. You have believed them, engaged with them, and lived out these lies in your life. I want you to listen to this lie, church, because you've heard it before, and I'm telling you, there's so many of you listening to me today, and you have swallowed this. Online, Alma, Mount Pleasant, you have have swallowed this lie. You have embraced it and accepted it, and you have lived your life out on the basis of a lie, and today I'm gonna expose it in the light of the word of God. Here is the lie. I must be perfect to be loved. I'm telling you, you know all about this. I've got to have my act together. I must be perfect. And when I'm perfect, then He can love me. And not just God. I've got to be perfect with other people. And when I'm perfect, then people will love me. You know this lie. So many of you, you live it out and you carry it in your marriage, your friendships. You behave one one way towards a whole bunch of people, but with your parents, you behave a different way because you've got to earn their love and you know you have to be perfect towards yourself, towards God. In order for anyone to love me, I have to have my act together. Sound familiar? Stand up straight. Comb your hair. Get good grades. Win the day, wear the nice dress, make the team, work hard, toughen up. You gotta be a winner. Go to practice, make the cut, make the grade, make money, get the right job, have the right body, have the right friends, study hard, drive the right car, wear the right clothes. You should pray more, church more, give more, Bible more. You should make the right connections, you should get ahead, you should show up, you should do it better, faster, higher, taller, bigger. You better look right, smile right, you better fix yourself, you better roll with the punches, you better keep it together and then you better get up the next day and do it all again together. And if you fail to hit that mark, if you're unable to accomplish any and all of that, then you are to be discarded. If you cannot keep that up consistently in your life, then you cannot be loved. For some of you, affection was withheld in your life because you didn't perform. You didn't do that. You didn't stand up straight. You didn't make the grade. You didn't comb your hair. You didn't wear the nice dress. You didn't get the grades. And as a result, affection was withheld from you. I'm so sorry If that's the life you have lived, if that's what's familiar to you. For you, for some of you, you clamor. You just can't get enough of it. You clamor towards attention and accolades like it's a drug. So you better be at your best. For some of you, you figured out very quickly that in order for you to be loved and be accepted, you have to dazzle people. And you have taken that lie. And you seem to have imprinted it on so many of your relationships. My heart breaks for you. Because the person who has swallowed the lie of, I must be perfect to be loved, it is a miserable existence. It is an exhausting way to go through your life. Because you'll never know if you've ever hit the mark. You'll never ever know if you hit that destination of reaching perfection. It is exhausting because you will run all your life as fast as you can can on a treadmill, never arriving at the place you need to get to. God would say this to you today. I see you. <laughs> I see you. Just as you are. Of course I know about all of your imperfections. Do you think any of that surprises me? I see your lackluster Bible reading. I see your non-existent prayer life. I see your doubts and your addictions. I know your most shameful moments. I know your desire to run back to sin again and again and again. Nevertheless, I love you. Not some upgraded version of you. Not some new and improved version of you. Not some 2.0 version of you. I love you just the way you are in this moment today. Will you receive the word of God over your life? But God, I mean, it's nice and everything, but if you just give me a minute, you know, I could just make myself more presentable. I can get my act together and and then it's okay. And then you can, you know, I'll be cleaned up. Romans chapter five, verse eight. But God demonstrates his love for us in this. God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were still sinners, there it is. While you were still a sinner. While you were still a hot mess. Why you were still riddled with guilt and shame. While you were still in that condition where you wanted to get in bed and pull the covers over your head and cringe at yourself. In that form, Christ died for you. We see this woman caught in adultery. Man, this has got to be the worst moment of her life. She's about to be stoned to death. This is the end of all things for her. Does Jesus stone her? No, he does not. He defends her from condemnation and death. And he loves her. And you look at her life, but come on, surely she is like more than far from perfection. Yep, that much is obvious. And he loves her. There's a, a man in the New Testament called Zacchaeus. He is a hated tax collector. Nobody likes this guy. Nobody will look at this guy. No, you wouldn't shake this guy's hand in public. And Jesus publicly invites himself into his home for a meal in front of a whole crowd of people. But surely this guy was like traitor of traitors and everybody hates him and he's far from pe- perfect and he's lined his own pockets to get rich at the expense of poor people and he's abusing. Yep, and Jesus absolutely loves him is an ostracized woman who's getting water at a well when the heat of the sun is at its highest. The women didn't do that. They would go early in the morning. And she did that by herself because she knows what she is And she is very familiar with isolation and rejection. Does Jesus isolate her? Does he reject her? No. He actually says, let me tell you what I know about you. It is the worst thing about you. You've been married five times, and the guy that you're shacked up with right now won't even marry you in an honor-shame culture. It's deplorable. He exposes this, and in the context of exposing that, he gives her no isolation or rejection. He just loves her. But surely she's a mess. Yep. And he loves her. And then there's a fella right by his side who is mocking the tar out of Jesus. And insanely, he's about to die. You might think, if ever there was a moment in your life where you might try to maybe be nice for a second, does Jesus condemn him to death? No, he invites him into paradise. This guy's a mess. This guy, not only has he done something wrong, he's been caught red-handed at doing something wrong. He's literally getting the justice whether it was fair or not, it's been expressed on his life right in that moment, and Jesus doesn't condemn him. He says, oh, I love you. Adam and Eve. They are awakened to their disobedience. It's like they actually their eyes are open and they see their rebellion and their dishonesty. And you know what they see? They see how naked they are. Such an odd thing. Because their innocence is eradicated. And what is the first thing that they do? Sounds really familiar to me. We need to patch for ourselves a very elegant suit. We gotta put something together to cover up this mess that we can now see our own imperfections and flaws and mistakes and guilt. God can't see us like this. We can't stand in front of him like this. This isn't gonna work. He's not gonna love us. So let's clean this up. Let's make a new suit. And they are like the most incapable children trying to string together leaves to somehow cover up this mess that they've made of themselves. But deep down inside, they know that everything, everything, everything has changed. And something is horribly wrong. This is what this lie will do to you. Today, I'm going to call you as disciples to step into obedience. And to counter this lie in your life, if this is a lie that you've been living. And you're sitting here and you're like, you know, I, you already know, man, this, is, this has been a theme of my life. I'm going to give you three biblical obediences right now to counter the lie of I must be perfect to be loved. Number one is confess. Go ahead. Admit you're not perfect. I dare you. <laughs> and I think there's more to this than you think. Confess. Confess. Do you know that thing that we all say, well, you know, I'm not perfect. You know, nobody's perfect. You ever heard anyone say that? Have you ever said that? Oh, I'm not perfect. You know, nobody's perfect. It's a cop-out. Because what that statement is, is you just take this broad, universal stroke and you say, well, I'm just like that. And to the person who truly struggles with this lie of I have to be perfect to be loved, they'll throw out a sentence like, well, you know, I'm not perfect. Nobody's perfect. It's a cop-out. It's too quick. Scripture tells us something very specific. Do you honestly want to know something about the scripture? Nobody really does this. Nobody does this at all. James chapter 5, verse 6. Confess your faults to one another. <laughs> That's going to be a no from me, thank you. <laughs> Nobody does that. Why don't we do that? Well, I've got to be perfect to be loved. I've got to look the part. I've got to have my act together. And here's what I would call you to. I would call you to... Learn to survive moments of imperfection so that other people can see your flaws. Actually witness them. Learn to survive that moment. Not the cop-out moment, oh, I'm not perfect, nobody's perfect. I mean really survive a moment where you deliberately choose to expose flaw. And learn to survive what that does to you. If you are one who has swallowed alive, I have to be perfect to be loved, I'm telling you that's gonna be a rough moment in your life. That's gonna be hard for you to swallow. To begin to learn that your value doesn't take a nosedive just because that is seen by other people. We do that in the context of the family of God. We let other people know. Not that, oh, you know, I'm not perfect. No, we just specifically let people know, here are my mistakes. Here's where I have flaws. Here's where I should hang my head, but thanks be to God he has given me Jesus Christ. And to the family of God, I know you know this, but I got to say it to you anyway. When some brave soul in our family finally takes that moment with a lump in their throat and they say to you, can I just be honest? Here's my junk. Here's the, just what last week looked like and here's what happened to my marriage and here's what I did and here's what I said and here's how I treated that person. How, what do we do in that moment, church? Do we respond with finger pointing and blaming and condemnation? You can answer that question if you like. Do, no, we don't do that right? Not at all. Right, we, we are gonna, we're going we're to dish out some grace and some love. But come on, they've messed up. Yeah, we're going to dish out grace and love. Well, why would you dish out grace and love? Because that's what Jesus did for you. So that's what you would do for somebody else. I want you to survive moments of imperfection and to do that on purpose, to deliberately allow... Someone trusted to see a moment of a weakness, to leave some dishes in the sink, I double dog dare you, to wear socks that don't match, you see dust on the living room table, Do a little smiley face in the dust and be okay with that imperfection in your life for just a moment. And when God sees those God-awful moments and you are seen for the fraud that you are, which is the fraud that all of us are, you say in that moment with faith in your heart, and this is so key, when you are caught in that moment, this is what you say, I am his beloved. So in that moment where you expose the imperfections and you're, you're surviving and learning to live through that, in that moment, you begin to exchange the lie for truth. "I must be perfect to be loved." No. Here's my imperfection, And here's what I declare to be true. I am his beloved. In this horrible moment where I have displayed and exposed myself in a, in a way that shows imperfection, I am his beloved. You may need to say it more than once. Church, can we actually say it together? Online, Alma, Mount Pleasant, ready? I am his beloved. One more time, loud. I am his beloved. That is stepping into truth. The first obedience to I must be perfect, to counter the lie of I must be perfect to be loved, is confession in the context of people seeing those imperfections and moving into the truth of being the beloved. Number two, everyday authentic. Every day authentic. Who remembers, depending on your age, the girlfriend, boyfriend moment? There's a significant day that happens when the girlfriend, maybe for the first time, doesn't wear makeup. Are the girls with me here? I don't wear makeup, I've never worn makeup in my life. I don't really know what that feels like, but what I'm told is when you wear makeup every time, every day, and there comes that moment where your boyfriend is there and you don't have makeup on, that is a hard moment, because it looks a little different. I really don't know what I'm talking about here much, do I? (laughs) Okay, my best understanding is this. Makeup is facial management, shall we put it like that? (laughs) It's designed to make the eyes look bigger, and the lips look fuller, and the nose look nosier. I don't know. I don't know what makeup does. (laughs) Okay. It's designed to cover up blemishes and flaws. Amen? Right. That's what it's designed to do. Have you ever had a conversation with somebody who's, you spend five minutes with them and you realize, this person is just so comfortable being themselves? You don't bump into that every day. You ever bumped into somebody and you're just chatting with them and there's just sort of this down-to-earth quality about them, a readiness to allow people to see them for just the way that they are. They're kind to speak to. They show people their heart. They don't disguise themselves. They're not really worried about what other people think about them or what the consequences of what that might be. And you know what it is when I bump into that? I find that to be a very attractive thing. How many years of your life have you found yourself being more measured and calculated than you would like around people? Situations where you work hard, in fact, you're bending over backwards to subtly try to manage what you think other people think about you. I think I've done that, particularly as a younger man. Have you ever emphasized opinions that you think will cause people to think that you are smarter than you actually are. Emphasized opinions or maybe told stories that you're like, I think that this is the kind of story that I think that they're gonna like. And you're thinking what you think they think about what you think. (laughs) It's a bit of a mess. I think I've done that in my life. I don't wear makeup, but maybe in a manner of speaking, I wear too much makeup in that light. And maybe you do too. I would call you to Everyday Authentic. It's a really attractive thing. I would challenge you to grow in the area of authenticity. In the New Testament, Paul encourages people to live a certain way. And he's got a really strange descriptor for this. He calls it, I want you to live with unveiled faces. Like, Paul, what are you talking about? It's a bit of an odd thing to say. Actually, it's an Old Testament reference to a gentleman by the name of Moses. And Moses would have these encounters with God. Go up to this mountain, Ten Commandment type moments, big encounters with God. And when he came back from being in the presence of God, it said that his face was glowing. It's the oddest thing. Like the dude was shining. He was just beaming, glowing. And so much so that people were like, I can barely look at you, Moses. Like you're so bright. My imagination can hardly get get my head there. And people are looking at Moses. And of course, you know what they're all thinking. Wow, look at Moses. Like, nobody does that. Moses. And he's pretty special. Well, one morning Moses wakes up and he's looking in the mirror and he's doing a bit of beard management. And he realizes something that astonishes him. My face, it's not glowing as much as it used to. I don't know what to do about that. Do you remember the nice tan that you had in August? (laughs) It's gone. (laughs) Moses knew that if people saw his face, what was he used to? Moses. Wow, look at Moses. Moses is so special. Man, have you seen Moses? Man, look at Moses' face. I can't hardly look at you. He knew that when somebody walked up to Moses next, they go, dude, where's the glow, man? What happened to shiny Moses? I don't see it anymore. And maybe he wouldn't be so special anymore. This is what Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 3.13. He says, we're not like Moses. We're not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to keep the Israelites from gazing at the end of what was fading away. Moses was putting a veil over his face because he was hiding the fact that his face wasn't glowing anymore. He wanted people to think that he was more spiritually radiant than he was. So he wore this veil over his face. I'm guessing it was probably his wife. Moses, knock it off. Take that dumb veil off your face. You're not fooling anybody. You're not fooling me. What a relief. I'm telling you, it is a relief to take that makeup, that mask, that veil, to take it off and just let people see you for what you are. Since we have this assurance of God's love, since we have this assurance of God's love, no matter what, we can do this really, really bold thing. We don't have to pretend to be more radiant than we really, really are. We can live with unveiled faces, no concealing, no makeup, no masks. Self-disclosure can be a scary thing. I get it. But it's not just that we need disclosure you know what you actually need you need healing and forgiveness and grace that's what you need a life of hiding yourself you need to be healed of that and that's why Jesus went to the cross because if the cross did anything it it disclosed the full measure of our junk and our sin and our shame and our guilt but it also disclosed the full measure of his grace towards all of that junk. The only place where true disclosure can actually take place is at the foot of the cross. So what's your veil? What are you hiding? What are you masking to keep from other people fully knowing you? And I would challenge you to everyday authentic. Ortberg said these these words, he says, the irony of masks is we wear them so other people will think well of us, but people are drawn to us only when we take them off. Three, obedience to counter the lie of I must be perfect to be loved. Number one, confess. Number two, authentic every day. And then finally, number three, it's my favorite, nothing. Nothing. You're like, I can do that. (laughs) No problem. (laughs) Pastor, what on earth do you mean by that? What, What are you talking about? Let me tell you what I mean by that. God's love is independent of you. It is. God's love for you is independent of what you do, and it's independent of what you do not do. It comes from a source outside of you. It's not finding its beginning or its roots or its motivation in you at all if you just sat there (laughs) if you just sat there for the rest of your life and you never got out of that seat you never got off that couch if you, if you just sat there and you never prayed another prayer, you never gave another penny to another poor person, you never served, you never read your Bible, you didn't say your prayers, if you just sat there and did nothing, God would never stop lavishing his love over your life. Sitting there doing nothing, he would love you. The life that is entrenched in keeping up appearances and convincing a world that probably doesn't care less, to be honest with you, that you're perfect and therefore you should be worthy of love, is a life of perpetual worry. Making sure that every hair is in place, that your checklist is complete, that you've done enough to satisfy what you think other people think about you, that is a formula for stress and anxiety and worry and fretting. I have to make sure that my elegant suit looks the part. I have to make sure that my hat and my trousers and my coat are intact. Luke chapter 12, who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Consider the wildflowers, how they grow. They don't labor or spin. Man, we do that. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of those. If this is how God clothes the grass of the field which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? Dressed in his righteousness alone. Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Church, I want you standing in your life on the rock of Christ Jesus. I want you living firm in your faith that you are loved by God. Yep, pretty broken, kind of messed up, pretty flawed, weak in so many ways, but loved. I am as beloved. And not only that, but that you would have an awareness that the person that you are sitting beside and looking at, they're also in this company of flawed, unqualified people too. That is who we are. And I will stand on the rock Christ Jesus and on his truth that he speaks over my life. Romans chapter eight says this. So who's gonna bring a charge against you? Who's gonna do it? Who's gonna bring a charge against you? Anyone that God has chosen. It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? Nobody. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or here it is, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? Who's going to bring a charge against you, church? I tell you who it is. Do you know who it is? It's you. You'll do it. Or the enemy, but he's a liar. But I tell you who will not bring a charge against you God. It says so in Romans chapter 8. Who is it that will condemn you? Listen to this. Every time you hear the voice of condemnation in your life, I promise you this, it's not your Father. Every time you hear the voice of condemnation in your life, it's not God. Let's stand let's worship.